The following film podcast frequently contains adult content, including foul language and descriptions of adult situations. Spoilers for the films discussed occur often. Listener discretion is advised. Now take it away, Dr. Rausch. <laughs> They must be destroyed on sight! They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 149, and I'm your host, Lee. They say there's no such thing as a bad man, only bad situations, Russell. And I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. I know her down to the moles on her back, Harper. How you doing, sir? Doing well, and I do indeed. <clears throat> Those sweaty, sweaty Japanese ladies. This is uh, possibly the greatest black and white sweltering heat movie since 12 Angry Men. Although 12 <laughs> Angry Men was made after this. But, you know, other than 12 Angry Men, we shall say. 12 angry men they just fucking ripped it off this fucking hacks yeah (laughs) city to may city to shit that's what i say (laughs) so yeah we're gonna be looking at stray dog from uh 1949 this is our first dip into kurosawa so there we go fine it only took us almost 150 episodes before we did it but you know it's what it's what we do Mm -hmm. so we, as I as I try to talk as, bourbon, he, as he drinks a sip of whiskey, you know. So Rob, as I try to drink bourbon and talk at the same time, something I used to be able to do. I'm pretty sure we're becoming we, old menly. It's it's part of the process, you know. We have to we have to uh, rely on the younger generation to take on the the responsibilities of keeping this thing going. All you, uh, yeah, yeah, all you millennials out there who are listening to us right now. Start drinking a lot of whiskey. Just, just you know, <laughs> fucking get on it. Lots of bourbon. Or, or, or adults. I was thinking more in terms of keeping the podcast going, you know? Um, oh, yeah, that but, too, I yeah. guess. <laughs> I like to think we're going to do this for 20 years and then hand it off to somebody. You know, that's that's my plan. Wow, okay. Um, hey, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, like like Paul's kids. We're going to give it to Paul's kids when we're, when we're old men. Yeah, that might work. His daughters seem pretty cool. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So we do have some comments from our Facebook page. And first two are from Jay Deering. In response to the fact that we were doing Stray Dog tonight, he says, you guys should do like a four-movie Kurosawa run. Stray Dog, Seventh Samurai, Dreams, and Throne of Blood. That's the suggestion. Although I think you have something else in mind, Daniel, as you're still programming the podcast. I do have a, I think we're going to do kind of four weeks of four directors we've never done, like kind of just pick some, some stuff that I'd just like to talk about at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm totally down for doing more Kurosawa. Although I haven't seen Throne of Blood. I've seen the rest and uh, Rashomon is not on that list. And uh, mm. that, that's kind of a requirement as far as I'm concerned. But uh, Seven Samurai and Dreams are definitely both on the, you know, like we should do that at some point list for me. So yeah, that'd be good. I've never seen Dreams. So uh, that'd be something to, to do. It's Please. late period. I mean, it's it's one of his last movies, honestly. Like, yeah, isn't it's, it's not like is not like ninety three or something like that. Or? Yeah, something like that. Late eighties, early nineties. Um, yeah, no, and it's a very kind of weird movie. I mean, I'd say uh, Ron would be the other one. You know, if we were Ron, be, yeah, yeah. So he, Jay Daring also continues saying, "Please review Mandy," which 
yeah, I'm up for that. Uh, I love that movie so much. So eventually we'll, <laughs> we'll have an episode. We'll, we'll, we'll put we'll put it on the list. We'll do it right after we do Mystery Road, which we've been telling ourselves we're going to do for two years now. You know. So. Mm, mm. Next up, uh, Darren Wilson. By the way, Daniel, you, you might notice in the uh, side chat, I posted a link. That is to a Photoshop that Darren put on the Facebook group. I don't know if you saw it beforehand or not. but No, uh, I don't think I did. It's in reference to something we were talking about in our last episode. So I'll let you click that first and take a look. <laughs> <laughs> that that does seem to be a uh, an excellent. I, I would I would definitely see that film. You know, <laughs> it's uh, for for those of you who have not seen it, uh, it is on the Facebook group. Um, it is uh, which you should like, join, even though I'm not there. I'm not on Facebook anymore, but you should definitely join the group. Yeah, uh, from what I see, that, it's a lovely place. Yeah, Marlena Dietrich and um, Jackie Chan <laughs> shooting it up in the old west. <laughs> Mar- Marlene Dietrich, circa you know nineteen forty something, and uh, Jackie Chan, circa what two thousand three, two thousand two, when that movie came out, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if uh, if we had a time machine and access to uh, studio budget of circa two thousand two, we could we can make that film. And Noah Owen Wilson. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I saw that film theatrically and I have like, I wish I had enough memory of it to make jokes about it. Honestly, I'm literally trying to rack my brain of like, there's gotta be some reference I can make. And I, and I have no, I have nothing. Isn't there two movies in that series? Yeah. There's, there's Shanghai noon and then Shanghai nights is, yeah. uh, is the sequel. And And as I recall, I actually really liked the original. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's sort of a fun little kind of like, I was kind of a big Jackie Chan guy in that. Era, as I as I still I still like Jackie Chan honestly you know I'm, mm-hmm. I'm you know I think he definitely has his his place and I thought that movie was you know perfectly fine Shanghai Nights not so much definitely uh, you know kind of killed that premise in one movie sort of thing but, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah at least uh, it's better than like the tuxedo and like as Jackie oh Chan got older God. and he couldn't do the um, you know he couldn't really do the uh, the action anymore, so he just kind of turned into... Um, yeah, we're just going to do uh, CGI, Jackie Chan, uh, <sighs> doing uh, crazy things. Which, he's still a great comedian. I always thought he'd be great uh, in, like, a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. Like, I wanted to see him as, like, the romantic lead as, like, sort of like a karate instructor who, like, you know, met, uh, you know, Diane Lane or something, and they had a series of meet-cutes, and, he, and you just got to see him date someone you know like in los angeles or something i always thought he'd be good at that well yeah, uh, now he he's probably aged past the ability to really kind of play that role but he could do the bumbling comedy thing like he could still do like the buster keaton charlie chaplin kind of Pratt falls and stuff like that he doesn't have to do the the insane stunts but he could he could do sort of that kind of he, he's the bumbling guy who's trying to win the heart of this beautiful woman and you know he's yeah he's a goof and all that shit you know that could work yeah, I mean, I, I just think uh, he could, he could definitely do some comedy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but that's uh, his real talent. Ultimately, I mean, not not to not to kind of bash the uh, the action stuff because I mean the action, but the action stuff is paced to be comedy. Well, yeah, know? he's and, he's and really not the, he's really not a, a martial artist per se. He's more of that uh, that Chinese dance martial arts. Yeah. Uh, something wufu or something like that it's called i don't know what it is but he comes from that side of things he doesn't come from like the hardcore david carradine had more legit martial arts background than jackie chan right. does, i think so <laughs> so darren wilson that, that's it we're doing a jackie chan movie this month that's it 
Well, we could pair. We could honestly, uh, a good pairing might be uh, the Toshiro Mifune Charles Bronson Red Sun with Shanghai mm-hmm. Noon. That would be a good good pair up. So no, I was some... thinking we we do a good Jackie Chan movie. That would be the. Uh... Oh well, hey, whatever you want. To... <laughs> <laughs> like, let's do a good one. That's kind of my goal. Is let's start the year off right and do good movies for just a little while before we, you know, kind of go back into the dreck. So, like, you know, <laughs> let's do one of Kurosawa's classics. No, no, no. Let's let's do uh, let's do uh, the seventeenth Blind Dead film. That would be a much better choice. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, uh, back to the original point. No here. one is listening to this anymore. It's done. No, it's it's already. Sorry, Darren. Uh, you won't hear this comment because you've already <laughs> tuned out. But uh, this is this is in relation to something we brought up on our Die Hard episode, where I was sort of speculating. Okay, so the first terrorist he kills, he tries on the guy's shoes, and they're too big, mm-hmm. small. And then we sort of question, like, why doesn't he try the shoes of every other terrorist he kills? Eventually, he's got to find someone who's his size, right? So he says, only through the preamble and maybe memory jogs when you go through the movie. But I thought he did try to take the uh, dead guy's shoes and says something like, why do terrorists all have small feet? So maybe there was like a follow up to that joke. Uh, maybe that I missed. I, I don't remember. I, I remember it. like there, I think there's at least one more scene where he like compares the shoes to his feet. I like to think this is a kind of the uh, John McTiernan uh, experience of, you know, Americans just naturally have much larger feet than Europeans. Oh, yeah. You know, I think it's, it's clearly meant to be a, uh, uh, you know, well, these are Euro trash scum, and clearly they're not going to match the "quote unquote" foot size of a uh, Bruce Willis as John McClane. I mean, you know, obviously Alan Rickman's a fucking pussy, so he's got small feet. And I then... think, I think if he killed Alan Rickman, I think Alan Rickman would have had the appropriate size shoes. <laughs> That's really on the cutting room floor, you know. Like <laughs> John McClane walks over to the splat in the sidewalk. <laughs> this is John McClane scene where he just kind of wanders and he, over like, there, pulls the shoes off, and then he puts them on, and he like like feels them out, and he's like, "Oh yeah, this guy, this guy okay. was man enough." To you have, know what? If if, you know, if I if I remade Die Hard. I, it would be shot for shot. Everything would be the same, except there would be an end credit scene where he tries on the, he tries on the shoes. That's it. <laughs> and if I remade Die Hard, shot for shot, um, puppet movie, Team America style. No, oh, okay, <laughs> that works too. That works. That is not actually what I would do, but you know. uh, okay, well, uh, but yeah, there you go, Darren. We don't really know, <laughs> so there's your answer. <laughs> we're just we're just fucking we're way off fucking kilter at this point i don't even know what the fuck's going on it's um, one of those it's one of those nights it's one of, it's gonna mm-hmm. be one of those episodes man where, i've had where... a lot of bourbon <laughs> up to this point cameron sullivan in relation to our best of episodes is still catching up but there's lots of unknown films this year i think for all the overrated duds and acclaimed ones there's at least more feasible options as opposed to more annoying foreign tragedy flicks art house crap or pretentious hyped up horror flicks yeah i think the last couple of years have honestly been really really good for f- films there's there's just been a lot of more i think diversity and interesting stuff going on in a lot of films the last couple of years so there's no shortage of good stuff to find as opposed to some years where maybe all like all the Oscar contenders were just like shit <laughs> for yeah. the most part. I mean, it's, it's interesting that the, uh, you know, I, I, I don't really follow like film news and kind of what's going on new anymore. I mostly mm-hmm. just kind of watch the old stuff that we're doing on the show. And then like the big special effects films. But um, I definitely have a sense that 
we're we're sort of seeing there there's a higher caliber of sort of baseline goodness than we'd get from you know from from five or ten years ago mm-hmm. that, that you know that it, it does seem like that uh and I think that that comes from just kind of social media that like sort of twitter and and Facebook and you know sort of comment sections just sort of require uh, you know people are just having to kind of think about things a little bit more you know and also yeah. uh, you know this is this is kind of a, a double edged sword in a lot of ways there's more money being spent you're not seeing like mid range films that just sort of you know some bullshit that people throw together for 20 million dollars and just release you've either got tiny budget kind of nothings which are kind of idiosyncratic and you know just sort of somebody's vision and you know whatever you know for mm-hmm. for less than 5 million dollars or a two hundred million dollar film that went through, you know, eighteen stages of development, and you know, <laughs> so, you know, whatever you have to say about the um, sort of like, you know, whether it was really worth watching, it at least sort of has a sort of baseline technical competence. But but a lot of the the, the more interesting films are often in that kind of middle range where you know, sort of like crazy shit happens and then roll credits. You know? Yeah, so you know, uh, it feels like there's been more openness in the last few years to just bringing independent filmmakers in and, and giving them a chance on things. Like you see sure. a lot of, a lot of guys who have one or two sort of more independent films that are picked up by studios and are hits. And then they're brought on to bigger projects. Well, Ryan Coogler, who mm-hmm. um, did uh, the, what he did, the Apollo film. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, did he do Rocky or was that somebody else? But he, he did a couple uh, of kind of like uh, those kind of medium budget, you know, sort of like, and then he did, Black Panther, which meant a billion dollars, you know, yeah. and which was very, very good. I just saw something on Twitter today where there was an article that was interviewing some of the women that he worked with, both in pre-production and like the actresses, and like you know, to where he had come forward and said, "No, we want to like actively fight against kind of patriarchal structures in terms of the way we make this film." And it's like, you know, good on you, Ryan Coogler. I am on your side. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, and it seems like studios are just maybe they're kind of waking up to that you know, the, the sort of mode we've been going on for the last 20 years isn't quite working anymore. And we got to kind of like open up and expand a little bit. So we're going to give these indie guys a chance. I mean, we're still going to take this guy who made this amazing indie film and put him as the helm of the next star Wars film or wherever the fuck, you know, but we're going to, you know, give him a little bit of the the fact that Ryan Johnson was, you know, he did brick and then, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, a couple of other, you know, small budget indie flicks in that kind of Miramax era, and then the Last Jedi. <laughs> they gave him mm-hmm. like the eighth film of a giant franchise, and like what you know, and, and that's, and, but that's totally. I think that speaks to the fact that you know, <laughs> twenty years ago there was this idea that if you had like kind of the big franchise films, what you did was you gave it to somebody who sort of had. An experience with sort of handling films of similar size, right. and I think that this does speak to just sort of the way that um, sort of the way the industry works is that you can put a kind of a really kind of creative, independent vision in charge, and know that the technical aspects will be taken care of by that kind of second unit, by that sort of yeah. like tech side of things. That you know, you just have enough like sort of like really talented creative people who can you know just kind of make the technology work. 
around sort of a more singular vision. I mean, you know, the guys who, I mean, the Infinity War, which is one of the most expensive films ever made, was helmed by people who were directing Arrested Development episodes in 2004. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's an, ast- I mean, that's just an astonishing sentence, you know? Uh, like, although you know? I, I think it's, I think it's a major upgrade from like the late nineties into the two thousands oh, yeah. where, where here's our new director for this suspense thriller. Uh, what did he do before? Oh, he did three music videos for Prince back in the 90s sure like, absolutely <laughs> i mean they used to kind of hire people who had you know sort of a, enough technical credit you had like a little show reel you know and and that's right. kind of what music videos were and now you you are seeing people who have a little bit more of an independent vision and and just and yeah no i i like it uh and, and until the entire industry as a whole decides that we're going to stamp that out too it's not it's not making enough money I mean, for us again the, the the flip side of that the flip side of that is that you know ultimately these movies get bigger and bigger and bigger uh-huh. and uh you know we've i, I think we've kind of reached the saturation point of at a certain point like yeah 250 million dollars on one movie is about as much as it's possible to spend yeah <laughs> like so i i hope it is because jesus uh, can you imagine if they get big i mean you know where you know the budgets well, just mean, keep ballooning just to the point an, of you know it's it's insane because you look at the the counterpoint to that is Lumho Studios where they're making all these little low budget horror movies for maybe five million dollars at the most mm-hmm. altogether, and then they're getting back that return like tenfold. It, it can be done. It's just it's just a matter of whether the bigger studios actually want to do it that way or if they're just right. so fucking well, but, greedy. So- that's kind of the thing is like we see like kind of the little stuff you know that's still kind of like within the studio system and you see these giant temple pictures but what you're not seeing is is things like you know that are in that sort of middle range where Mm -hmm. you know it's going to cost 40 million it'll make 70 million you know it made its money it did its thing it and was kind of an interesting film i mean ultimately capitalism is the enemy here uh, yeah, you know, uh, as as it always is, you know. Yeah, like, I, I I still want to see like the five million dollar Batman film where it's like oh, it's yeah. straight up noir, and he's actually doing detective work. And of course, there's still fist fights, and there might be a little bit of special effects, but for the most part, it's just Batman doing detective work and beating the fuck out of criminals. I mean, I'd love to see like the forty million dollar Captain America film, you know, where it's not like kind of the big, you know, where you have some like a couple of kind of big action sequences, but you know, the universe isn't at stake, and you know, you've got some like really good actors kind of you showing do, up. I mean, there's there's so many Captain America missions you could do mm-hmm. as a movie. You could do like a straight up dirty dozen thing where Captain America has to take on this team of fucking criminals under his fucking wing and, and fight the Nazis with them or something like that. That has potential. That could be something that's really fun, I think. <laughs> Cap- Captain America, you know, like defeats a crime syndicate in, you know, 2012 or something. You know, there are yeah. all kinds of things you can do with it. You know. Oh, well, I mean, then if, if you want to fight the World Crime League or something like that, you know, like a Buckaroo Banzai, that that proposed sequel that never fucking happened. I want to see that. Sure. <laughs> but yeah. Um, we are so far off topic at this point. You know? Yeah. Yeah. We're never uh, going to talk about Japanese cinema in the forties if we don't move on. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just very quickly, uh, what have you been watching lately, Daniel? I don't really want to talk about the films as much as I was going to kind of go off on a tangent here mm-hmm. about maybe we can do it anyway. Uh, we'll see. Uh, so, <laughs> I feel very, very American saying this. I know that we have listeners from around the world, by which I mean 20 people in the U.S., 20 people in Canada, and four in uh, 
<laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, <laughs> as kind of our, our kind of a Christmas gift to ourselves, my wife and I uh replaced our old TV, which was a fifty inch, you know, ten year old TV where the remote the volume control didn't work anymore, like the remote oh, yeah. didn't work anymore, which was frustrating. And uh we just said, you know, it's been ten years, let's uh throw some money in. So in the kind of after Christmas getting rid of inventory we bought a really nice smart TV, a 55-inch smart TV for off of Amazon for, you know, $300. And dear God, the difference between 50 and 55 inches is uh, this TV is gigantic. I got it into the house and just was uh, in this. That's just kind of more TV than I know what to do with right now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, what do you do the second you have like a, a giant um, 4K, you know, smart TV? Uh, you throw on Netflix and you go like, "What's the like super um, great special effects movie?" So I rewatched. Yeah, you know, I literally was like, "Let's put on Thor Ragnarok." I'll watch ten minutes mm-hmm. of it and then go to bed. I watched all of Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> a, that movie is a genius. I love that movie. I have probably rewatched that movie more than any other Marvel film. But also. It looks fucking amazing. And I saw this film theatrically. So I'll just kind of sum this up very quickly here. I watched, I did similar things with Thor Ragnarok one night. I did Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 the next night. And then I did <laughs> Kill Bill Volume 1, the third one, oh. right? You know? Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of halfway through Kill Bill Volume 2, which all of these are on Netflix uh, right now. So um, interestingly, what I found was that particularly with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, a lot of these sort of Marvel films, a lot of the kind of the big special effects films of the last few years, a lot of where that money goes is into, you know, kind of detail work in the corners of frames doing like really kind of super quote unquote realistic by which I mean lots of moving parts, kind of special effects. Mm-hmm. And if you see these films on a big screen, it's kind of too big to fit in your vision at one time. Right. And so it just sort of feels like this sort of mishmash of images and you just kind of catch three or four things. And this may very well be that I'm 38 years old. I'll be 39 in a couple of months. And, you know, I'm just not used to this. It may very well be that like kids just kind of get this completely and, you know, more power to you if you're listening to this and you're that person completely down with that. But uh, seeing it on sort of a 55 inch screen in my living room and watching it suddenly, like a lot of that just made more sense to me. It was more in my frame of vision. I could kind of Hmm. keep up with the, the frame of it. In comparison, watching like Kill Bill Volume 1, which, you know, without kind of necessarily comparing sort of the directorial, uh, I mean, these are three, these are, I think, three great directors with, you know, very different styles. But, you know, something like Kill Bill Volume 1, which is this highly uh, energetic, action-heavy material, but made before this kind of era of CGI everywhere and, you know, but also kind of made with a sense of we've got a few kind of static images within a frame and it's kind of built with an eye towards composition. And um, that film, while was amazing, I I mean, I love... I love Tarantino. Everybody in this, everybody listening to this knows I love Tarantino. I love the Kill Bill series. Loved watching it again on the giant screen. It was, it looked gorgeous, but was not as good as when I saw that theatrically in 2003. And I think there is this sense of like, you know, I wish that films made for the big screen were made for that kind of all enveloping experience again, you know, that sort of, okay, we've got kind of a few elements. We're kind of build a, a tableau and then we're going to give you time to look at it. But that also kind of speaks to sort of the way that films are edited now 
on you know screens that are similar to my you know giant amazing TV for three hundred dollars you know where you know it is kind of edited for that kind of that kind of experience where most this is how most people are really going to kind of watch the movie and you know you're going to rewatch it five times or whatever and that's the thing and you know it's 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 very much a you know like I really enjoyed rewatching Thor Ragnarok and and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two on my big TV it was it was a really fun experience but. Uh, the fact that it was a more fun experience watching it on my television versus on the big screen when I saw it originally, I think says something just about the way that films are directed and edited these days. Yeah. And I have, I have complicated feelings about that as I think uh, well, I'm trying yeah, to get across. That's, it is, you know, as, as a theater lover, it, it is kind of troubling because you, you can kind of see again, just this determination to maybe edge theatrical experience altogether out of the market in this video if if with this tv in my living room and just kind of knowing the theatrical experience i mean it's it's great to sort of get it to kind of get to go out there and see i mean something like um spider-man into the spider-verse which was an astonishing film to see on the big screen but also, there's so much detail there's so much stuff kind of going on in that film i guarantee you I will get more out of it when I get to see it on my television. You know, mm-hmm. like I, it, I could even see it again on the big screen, and I could miss details on it. You know, and I, I, mean, I again, I'm not, I'm not trying to kind of challenge it necessarily. I'm just trying, kind of trying. To, I, I think it's an. I just kind of came up to that realization, and it's a, it's a complicated. I just kind of shrugged my shoulders. You know, and I mean, when we we'll talk about Stray Dog here shortly, and I feel like that's a film that's kind of built on kind of brilliant composition, which. Yeah worked great on my giant 55 inch television <laughs> screen it was uh and it was a great experience to get to watch it but also that's a film i would absolutely see on the giant screen had i had if i have the chance to do that if it was yeah. playing near me i would absolutely do that and if kill bill were playing on you know kind of a, a, a big screen I would do that. I'm not necessarily sure I would kind of go back and see Thor Ragnarok on a big screen again, like sort of based on that. And I feel like that's the, it kind of feeds back into the conversation we we're just having about, you know, sort of the, right. you know, the, the kind of budgetary restri- requirements, kind of the use of CG. And it's not like, I don't hate CG. I love CG. CG is brilliant. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm totally on board. It's just kind of how it's used and what, what we're doing with it. If we're going to make films for the big screen, I hope that, there is more of an eye towards sort of a more basic compositional element towards like giving people time to look at your framing, you know, versus kind of quick cutting necessarily that can work on, you know, again, in the home theater experience, I think that's perfectly fine, but for the, for the, for the giant, you know, the IMAX screen or whatever, you know, not so much. Yeah. No, uh, CG is just another tool. I mean, it's it's just like a boom mic. <laughs> as long as you keep the boom mic out of the frame and you use the CGI properly, it's fine. You know? <laughs> right. I would really like to see CGI boom mics in films more. <laughs> I'd like to see a really uh, awesomely constructed, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy style, you know, Pac-Man monster eating, um, you know, giant thing, you know, do, uh, crazy shit. And then like fake CGI boom mic <laughs> moving into frame. You, you know? know, it'll probably happen at some point. There's, yeah. I, I mean, think it'll... if James Gunn were directing Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which he's not. Mm-hmm. And he will listen to this podcast, which he definitely is. Yeah, he's um, definitely. He would he would do it. I think I think that would be a thing that would happen. Yeah, James, make it happen. Um, yeah. 
for me, uh, the only thing I watched on your recommendation, Ocean's 8. I watched yep. that uh, the other day, and I liked it a lot. It was a lot of fun. I think it holds up to the other Ocean's films. Uh, it's, a, it's a worthy addition to the franchise, and it's not gimmicky. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that, that's one of the things I like the best about it, is it's not just, oh, let's do the female version of this and not think it through and actually make it good, which uh, right. which is still my... Which is still my personal um, sort of criticism of the Ghostbusters, uh, the old sure. old female Ghostbusters. I didn't enjoy it too much because I didn't think they had the jokes behind it to make it work right. I I enjoyed the 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 2016 Ghostbusters, but I kind of just enjoyed it on its own. Like it was kind of its own thing. It was a silly mm-hmm. movie that I just I really enjoyed, and I just really enjoyed some of the performances. But like I completely understand like kind of going this is isn't like kind of worth the franchise necessarily. Does it live up to the 1984 ghostbusters? No, of course no, not, but like nothing, nothing ever will. Not supposed to, yeah. um, you know, yeah. And I'm, and I'm trying to kind of agree with you here is that, you know, while I liked the 2016 ghostbusters more than you did, I think we're kind of on the same page with what the experience of watching it was, you know, mm-hmm. whereas I think oceans eight film, it isn't uh, reliant on that same level of like sort of cultural criticism as well, where, you know, I think ghostbusters, not only it wasn't just, Oh, this has to be sort of a silly film of people making jokes and kind of a thing. It had to be, you know, the big like feminist version of ghostbusters. It right. had to sort of live up to this, you know, legacy in a way that, I think by the time you get to Ocean's 8, it's just kind of like, oh, we're going to do an Ocean's film, but we're going to do it with with women. And it can just be sort of fun and goofy, and it didn't become like this kind of cultural moment in the same way. So I would just encourage people, it's, it's actually, if, if you like heist movies, mm-hmm. uh, it's one of these ones, it's just like the Ocean's, the other Ocean's films. There's no real threat that these guys are, that these people are going to lose. They're, they're, no. you, you know they're going to win. They're, <laughs> like, there, there is, there's literally no conflict in this film like no it's it's, it's basically it's completely fun it's just completely fun like watching them you know just go through the motions of making the plot work and i'm I'm uh, like also big lesbian energy i've got it yeah um i'm just the who's the 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 second in the cast i know like sandra bullock and uh, kate blanchett and kate blanchett I, i was watching this movie and i'm just thinking to myself why are you even bringing up the hint that there's like some doubt between these characters of the, of the plan actually happening. It's just like, just, just fucking do the fucking heist. Who gives a shit? Cause no one's buying that. There's any conflict between you two. You two totally want to fuck. That's all right. <laughs> and you know, the fucking thing is going to go. So just do it. And I, I got, it, it just follows the formula. So it has to do that, I guess, but it's lightweight. It's fun. And it shouldn't be dismissed. Some people who, who may be a little, you know, tired of the the arguments like, oh, here we go, the female this, the female that. Now just shut up and fucking watch it. It's actually enjoyable. It's it's, it's it's really good. It survives that argument by just not having it. You know, it doesn't it doesn't have to live up to that. It's it's a fun little silly movie. And mm-hmm. you're gonna get through what, an hour forty two or whatever that movie is, and uh you're gonna was, enjoy uh, yourself and it was a fucking breeze, man. It was such a breeze. It was just fun. It was like I I, I actually I can't remember the last time I just saw a movie that was just purely fun it was just you know it was like a throwback almost to like a bunch of actors you like watch them have fun on screen who cares about the plot just watch them have fun and a bunch of really beautiful women as well Mm -hmm. like i mean if we're gonna you know if we're gonna just like allow it to be that yeah a bunch of really gorgeous women i could watch anne hathaway in this movie all day 
Yeah, uh, I mean, they make a point of her being a, an actress in the film who is known for her uh, amazing neck, and then it's like mm-hmm. that's all you watch through. And then let's just film. let's just watch Anne Hathaway's neck for you know uh, every every seven minutes for an hour and forty five minutes or whatever. We're gonna look at Anne Hathaway's neck for at and least thirty seconds, and, and she's uh, a she's a fun character too because she's not just a ditzy dumb actress. She actually. Well, She's you actually, get, she actually has a turn in this it. film. Yeah. Spo- spoiler alert. There's oh, more come going on, on than, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll spoil the hell out of this film. It's fun. There, there's, there's cool yeah. stuff in it. It's, so. it's amazing. Go go see Ocean's 8. That, or, you know, like, pull it up. It's a good. On, it's, it's, it's a fun movie. It's a fun movie. I want to rewatch Ocean's 8 right now. Like, yeah, it's, I don't want to keep recording this podcast. I just want to go watch Ocean's 8 now. No, we have to talk about Stray Dog. We got to talk about Kurosawa now? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> that fucking stuffy that old Kurosawa. Guy. Yeah, Jesus. Come on. That let's, fucking let's... guy. He doesn't even like people. Yeah. Yeah. So there's just, no, there's no humanism in his work, really. You know, yeah. no, no, no good photography or. Yeah, yeah, just... yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Jesus, now we're 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 only like uh, forty minutes into this. We'll take our yeah. break. Uh, we'll play some music and some podcast promos, and we'll come back to talk about Stray Dog. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Oh, necrophilia. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, Prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. Unimaginable! At twelve years old, you should not be watching this. Movie. Obviously, at thirteen, you should not be. Fourteen, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even seventeen-year-olds should be watching this. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept little history doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped from watching this shit at twelve years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How did be a you watch movie. this shit at twelve? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Mmm, great coffee. Mmm. Hey. Chad, who's that strange, somber man on the cover of that book you're reading? Oh, that's H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, I've heard of him, but I never really got into his stuff. It's kind of strange and hard to read. Oh, I used to think that, too. But that all changed when I started listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. What's that? The H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast is a weekly podcast. Tell me more. These two really smart and hilarious guys give a synopsis of the story, then they talk about its background, the critical views, and what it says about the author. Well, where can I listen? Let me tell you, Chris, you can go to hppodcraft.com or, heck, just subscribe through iTunes. It's that easy. Oh, Chad, I'm so excited. Now I can listen to this podcast and pretend to all my snooty friends that I actually read and understand H.P. Lovecraft. Hey, that's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) HPPodcraft.com
Okay, Stray Dog from 1949, directed by Akira Kurosawa, written by Ryuzo Kikushima and Akira Kurosawa. The real reason, the real reason I picked a Japanese film is to make Lee pronounce all the names. Hey, I think I'm better at the Japanese ones. The the Italian ones are really the ones that... They're the horrible (laughs) ones. They're they're the ones that don't make sense to me. So it's starring Toshiro Mifune as Detective Mirakami, Takashi Shimura as Detective Sato, Kiko Awaji as Hamurai Namaki, uh, Kiko Miyoyoshi as Harumi's mother, Noriko Hanma as a wooden tub soap woman. Wow, that's a... (laughs) I didn't even read that beforehand when I cut and paste all this shit into my notes. Izo Kimura as Yusa, and Ryakichi Kawamura as Officer Ichikawa. And for the synopsis here, I pulled from IMDb from someone called Jim Beaver. Probably not that Jim Beaver, right? <laughs> probably, probably not. Murukami, a young homicide detective, has his pocket picked on a bus and loses his pistol. Frantic and ashamed, he dashes about trying to recover the weapon without success until taken under the wing of an older and wiser detective, Sato. Uh, together, they track the culprit, which is, yeah, that's kind of the bare bones of this. Although I think there's a lot deeper stuff going on in this film. So that's the key to the synopsis is to not actually describe the film. Well, mm-hmm. describe the film. So you did a good job, Jim Beaver. Actually, no, I hope it is the real Jim Beaver, and that's like a parody. <laughs> like, I hope he has like a good version somewhere else on the site, but, you know. <laughs> Before we get your thoughts here, Daniel, I'll just mention that since this is our first excursion into Kurosawa, this is actually his 10th film. He started in 1943. He did have some, like side directing credit on another film before this that he wasn't credited uh, with at the time. But his first film was Shigata Sanshiro from 1943. And from then till 1949, he did another nine films. So, um, Mm -hmm. so he was already pretty prolific at this point. This is actually the second film to Shiro Mifune starred in for him. So Mm -hmm. uh, yes. What's your sort of general thoughts on this, Daniel? I saw this more than 10 years ago. I love this film. Uh, I mean, obviously I picked it. I wanted to talk about it. I love this film. I uh, saw it. If if it tells you the era back in the days when I was still getting the Netflix DVDs. Oh yeah. And so like I had rented the criterion DVD and I uh, had watched it that way. And there's also a, um, a brilliant commentary. I, I don't have the, the details in front of me, but I, I, I listened to that commentary track by a uh, film historian. Isn't that uh, Stephen Price, I think his name is? Sounds about right, yeah. yeah. Um, um, I didn't get a chance to. I don't own the DVD uh, or the Blu-ray. I seriously considered buying it to do to do it for the – but it was like 30 bucks, and I was like, yeah, yeah. no, not, not – I'm not. I'm not feeling it. I just bought a, I just bought a really fancy TV, and I. Yeah. This, it turns out this was on uh, the uh, the film box subscription on Amazon Prime. So I just uh, I did that. Uh, nice. You get the the four ninety nine a month, or you do the seven day trial, and you can watch this if you're an Amazon Prime member. Highly recommended. It's brilliant. It's mm-hmm. great. This is uh, you know kind of early Kurosawa. Kurosawa a. Uh, I mean, no, no question. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to be controversial here and not say like Kurosawa was an absolutely astonishing filmmaker. Um, this yeah. is a film that is expertly made from start to finish, full of uh, amazing performances. We can kind of talk about some of the themes of the film. I think as we mm-hmm. after we get the the sort of the the intro out of the way. What I love about this is that it's uh, fundamentally a uh, just a crime picture. 
You know, yeah. it's just it's it's a crime film. Um, in terms of plot, you can describe it and just go, yeah. I mean, it's not difficult for me to imagine someone just kind of sitting down and watching this and enjoying it, just as sort of a period crime picture to to a, to a large degree, and kind of mm-hmm. going, oh, this was a little bit slow, or this was kind of weird, or whatever. But like, it just kind of works on that level. But it also works on a, a very um, different level, even as it was intended in forty nine. Um, kind of a uh, kind of a meditation on morality in a lot of ways, and sort of like kind of a consequentialist versus intentionalist view i think especially in kind of 2018 it looks it, it also it also works as a portrait of a particular time period in in japanese history and right. uh, i am absolutely not an expert on japanese history but people who who are will talk about this as sort of this uh, kind of almost documentary like portrait of uh, some of the issues that are kind of going on around this time period um in japan i don't think about this film a lot i just sort of like i I liked it a lot. I kind of mm-hmm. had my little moment with it and then kind of moved on, but I've always kind of thought like, oh, I'd love to revisit it. And then getting to revisit it was just a, a joy, like from start to finish. I, this was not one. We have kind of done uh, done some films on the on here that I have kind of seen 10 years ago and then kind of rewatched and right. didn't come back to and had like quite a stronger response to. Uh, this was one that if anything, I actually loved more coming back to it now than I did, you know, when I was, you know, uh, 27 or 26 or whatever when I saw it before. Um, absolutely amazing. Filled with great performances, great photography. Go watch it and then come back and listen to our commentary. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's kind of my... You're, yeah, you really should see it before we talk about it. Because we're going to we're gonna give it away. Uh, you know, there's no... Oh, yeah. We're going to have to. And, um, but not that there's... Not, not that I even think that not to not to kind of speak over your your comment but like even even if you know how this ends i don't think it like kills the structure of the film necessarily it's not like there's some big twist ending i don't want to make it seem that way when i first saw this i kind of knew nothing about it except it was based on a premise Mm -hmm. um and the reason i watched it originally was because i was a huge i still am a huge fan of paul thomas anderson's magnolia and there's a um subplot in that film which is about uh, a cop uh, played by John C. Riley who loses his gun. Oh yeah. And Paul Thomas Anderson literally just lifted it from this. You know, yeah. It, it was, you know, that was his, that was his inspiration. And then he builds this kind of like weird romantic subplot mm-hmm. and this like giant sprawling three hour epic um, out of this element of this film and, and kind of does that thing. And so I was like, well, I have to see this film because I loved Magnolia and, you know that sometimes the way you discover a, a genius masterpiece is is through that kind of weird uh, connection. But yeah, yeah, and I, I've sort of read different things. Like there's maybe some conflicting information on sort of the origins of this. Um, it seems like Kurosawa both uh, really admired a novelist who had like an un- unpublished version of this story that was based mm-hmm. on something in real life of a cop having their gun stolen, and then Kurosawa went on to actually write this as a novel before he turned it into a screenplay. Yeah. So he, he spent like 30 days writing this as a novel. Then he spent an extra 40 days writing this as a screenplay, trying to adapt it, which he apparently felt was really difficult. Um, uh, one of one of the supplements on the criterion disc is actually him talking about how I should have really not done that. <laughs> it took too much time. It, it plays on screen because it does play like an adaptation of sort of a, a richer work in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does, you know, there, there's a very different uh, process of sort of writing something in text versus, you know, kind of doing a film version. And I think it's a richer experience than if you were kind of 
designing this specifically to be kind of the 90 minute police procedural right which i think there is a sort of like 90 minute police procedural version of this which is far inferior to the version that we actually have and so um I'm totally down. I mean, you know, I would love to see more films made with that process of like, oh, yeah, we're going to write the novel first and mm-hmm. then, you know, adapt the novel. It gives you all the context you need in the novel. And then you have to, then you have to really work hard to pare it down into a screenplay. So, right. And then find sort of the visual elements of it. I mean, big chunks of this film are, are basically just people talking. I was, I was, you know, big chunks of it kind of play like an episode of Law and Order, right? You mm-hmm. know, like, yeah. you know, a whole bunch of it just sort of plays like, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're just hunting down clues. One of the things I really admired, I mean, you know, one of my favorite things that I ever did at making this podcast was uh, the, I like diagrammed the plot of the big sleep because mm-hmm. that's one of those like famously complicated, nothing makes sense kind of things, unless you really kind of track it down. I didn't have the chance to do that for this film, but I think there's some interesting like stuff. If you kind of dig into the plot and sort of the way that certain revelations are made and sort of connections that are made um, there, there's some really interesting parallelism that I think comes across in a more nuanced way, uh, given the version that we have, than it would have had, you sort of written it as a as a sort of a screenplay, you know. Um, yeah. Kind of first. So uh, for me, I, I bought the Criterion disc years ago. I've watched it a couple. I.e., you are superior to me. I get it. No, I've watched it a couple times in the last few years. This is one of my favorite police procedurals of all time, just because not only is it in in a way for its time kind of complex, because there there are some elements here that are definitely precursors to what you basically just see in every police procedural going forward. It's also incredibly simple. Like you said, it's, it's a very straight ahead plot. If you want to view it that way. I mean, it's, I, there's a lot, there's a lot of like, we go question somebody, we get some piece of information that leads us to mm-hmm. this clue, which gives us some piece of information. Again, there's no big twist in this. There's no, no big no, like no. thing of like, oh, and then it was the father the whole time or whatever, you know, like, yeah, it's no, not, it's, you know, it's, and the film very... even kind of plays with that. Like it, like there, there's a bit where, you know, you see the, uh, sort of the killer's shoes and you don't necessarily, and you don't see him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can kind of play with the idea that it's somebody we've already seen before, but it's not, it's just some, it's just some other guy, you know? And uh, yeah, sorry. it does play with that. And it's, it's very straight ahead, but it, it, at the same time, it's, it's very much a police procedural in that it respects police work where it's, this is what police officers do. They follow the clues and they go through witness after witness and they, and they go through, all kinds of just monotonous crap to, to even get a, a slight clue, you know, to maybe mm-hmm. link the chain, you know, and that's what this movie shows. Although there, there's more desperation here because Tashiro Mifune's character is this young cop who is eager to prove himself and feels very fucking ashamed that he lost his gun and he's just driving forward. Like, I don't think he sleeps in this film. Like, um, <laughs> the, the the opening scene where he's at the gun range before he loses his gun, he talks about how he was like on a stakeout or something the night before. So you kind of assume he hasn't even slept yet. He he got off his case and then he went to the gun range with his buddies and mm-hmm. they, they did some shooting. And then he's like, yeah, I'm tired. He's not even a go good home. shot. That's the other no. thing. Like, you know. No, he's just a young, he's just a young cop. He's not an expert at anything. And so he's going home and he has his gun stolen on the bus. And 
from then on, you don't see him sleep. He's just, it's almost like he's taking meth on the side or something, you know, like to keep awake. I suspect he, I suspect he does like sort of like collapse it at the end, but we mm. never see, we never see him in his home environment. He's always, he's always really uncomfortable. And, uh, yeah. but you're right. It, it does kind of follow, um, you know, it's 2019. We, we can have complicated feelings about, you know, police work in, right. you know, in the real world. And uh, the fact that, you know, all cops are bad and, you know, it's a uh, servicing capital and all that sort of thing. That's not the role of the police in this film. In this no. film, you know, despite the fact that it, it sort of, it plays things very close to the chest in terms of, or, or very close to reality, I should say, in terms of like the way that police work works. Like, I mean, you know, we got to get this guy's ration card, which will have his name on it. You know, yeah. we're comparing bullets and kind of like there, there's a real uh, kind of focus on like police procedure and and uh, a very kind of real world element to that. Here, what we see is, uh, you know, cops who are working in this world of this world of extreme poverty. This is something that comes yeah. back in Kurosawa's work, most particularly, I think, um, even more poignantly in Seven, Seven Samurai. You know, this is this is a film that's set in a very particular time and place, which is uh, kind of post-war Japan. I mean, it, it's released in 49. I imagine it's meant to be kind of roughly contemporaneous. But all over the place in this film, you see kind of the results of, you know, Japan was fucking burned to the ground <laughs> in right. World War II. You know, the the people, you know, not, not only that, but sort of their system of government, like kind of based on an emperor, which was, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of god emperor figure. And I'm... I'm really trying to not be sort of an orientalist white shithead talking about this here. You know, I'm really trying to kind of like give it, give it both the kind of respect it's due, but also kind of not oversimplify, but the system of government, sort of the, the, the mythology of Japan prior to, you know, like during the war was, you know, we're kind of all kind of like uh, members of a society kind of working under the emperor who has, you know, sort of godlike omniscient powers or, you know, kind of whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, this was sort of the state that, you know, the, the country was in. Also, you know, not <laughs> the state much of the country I live in is in right now. So, yeah, uh, you know, there's... let's let's not let's not I'm not, I'm I'm literally not trying to, uh, you know, <laughs> otherize these people. Um, but the film uh, kind of exists as something that is made during that kind of post-war period after only, you know, after the, as part of the, uh, the end of the war, Hirohiro was forced to, uh, you know, abdicate power and sort of like declare himself not to be the God emperor or whatever. So you're seeing like kind of an imposition of kind of an outside imperialist force through, you know, kind of American intervention. Uh, And uh, it was American planes that literally firebombed most of these mostly wooden cities. Uh, None of this is in the film. I want to be clear, but it's essential historical knowledge that if you don't kind of understand that's kind of the world that these people are living in, that literally every character in this film is building a new life in the like ashes, the literal ashes of the life they had before, right. then you're missing sort of the the context that anyone seeing this film in 1949 would have had in Japan. Um, also, there's a ton of kind of, and, and I'll, I'll make this point and then I'll let you kind of interject here. I apologize. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a ton of distinction between sort of the old ways and the new ways. There's a ton of, you know, there's an extended sequence where they play baseball in this film. That's a Western right. kind of innovation. There's a character who kind of goes from wearing like a kimono to wearing like a Western style dress. You see uh, lots of lots of characters who are kind of embracing the uh, stuff that's kind of being brought in from you know Europe and, and America. 
the film was very ambivalent about kind of what that means and how right. that's really kind of affect things. One of the kind of big themes is, you know, the children will ultimately decide what all this means. So ultimately we're having a debate about this, but ultimately it's not up to us anymore. Yeah. And there are sort of like three generations happening. There's this sort of pre-war generation. There's this, what they call Apris Guerra, which is yeah. you know, the post-war. And there's a big kind of conversation about that. And that is like basically um, the kids who fought in the war that they lost and then sort of like have to rebuild their lives afterwards. Yeah. But then also the children of all these people who are ultimately going to kind of make those decisions. And uh, it's really fascinating, even beyond any of the qualities of the film itself, which are substantial, but uh, just that sort of like the fact that we're seeing someone really kind of embrace those questions and really kind of put it in this thing contemporaneously above any other factor that makes this film worth seeing for anyone like it with any interest in sort of the history of this period. Yeah, uh, Akira Kurosawa, a man who did at least one Japanese propaganda film during mm-hmm. wartime, you know, is is now making films that questions his entire country's involvement in the war and what it means for that country. Uh, you're you're absolutely right, especially comparing this to Seven Samurai. It's, it's basically two examples of the Japanese uh, caste system, which was incredibly strict just being decimated uh with seven samurai you have a bunch of the samurai class who are essentially just ronin now they don't have the status they had before because of the shake-up of the the installment of the tokugawa shogunate and here you have an even more extreme example of this where almost every well basically every uh cast in in japanese society was basically decimated to some point after World War II. Well, the whole society is decimated. Yeah, and I think, and, and again, go watch Grave of the Fireflies. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. For sort of the, like, let's watch two, uh, apologies, spoilers for Grave of the Fireflies, let's watch tiny children starve to death you know, yeah. in the aftermath of World War II. That's what Grave of the Fireflies is. And it's amazing and brilliant and, and wonderful. But also, yeah, it's it's children starving to death. Any accounting of... World War Two. I mean, and I think here, um, I, I can't speak to Canada, but certainly in the United States, you know, World War Two is sort of the greatest generation. Like we, you know, we went in and, and beat the Nazis and, you know, oh, it's terrible we, that we dropped atomic bombs on Japan, but ultimately it was sort of necessary, et cetera, we et cetera. Have, uh... And like the firebombing of Tokyo not something that we think about very much. Like, uh, you know, we burned civilian populations alive with incendiary bombs. And those bombs killed way more people than the atomic weapons that, right. that ended the war, you know? Yeah, the, the Canadian mythology behind World War II, still the sort of greatest generation thing. That's definitely instilled in, in everything you talk about with this. But for us, you know, we don't have the genocide of two cities on our hands so much. But with Canadian mythology be behind World War II, it's very much, here's the colonials who came and helped save great Britain, you know, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of what it is. And and like, it seriously is what it is. It's, it's, you know, we, we were a colony of great Britain. We were the, the queen is still our figurehead of state to this day, you know, like it's still the, you know, so we, you know, we, we took up arms and, and came to defend the queen and country. And there's definitely a lot of hoo-ha about be behind, you know, the Canadian fighters in World War One and World War Two mm-hmm. came in and sacrificed themselves for the greater good to fight the, those vicious Huns, you know, like, so. Sure, yeah. So, yeah, I, and 
yeah, I think that's just kind of something that's commonplace in Western culture, really, when it comes to World War II. The, the people want to romanticize all that shit, right? So, well, you know, we, we don't want to think about the sort of the, the victims of all of that. And, you mm-hmm. know, like, let's not use this as a uh, sort of excusing uh, imperialist Japan either, right. you know? <laughs> No, they were they were doing they were doing all the same awful shit we were doing. They, I mean, the, the rape of Nanking, you know, if, mm-hmm. if nothing else, you know, the, this was a wannabe empire going and and doing absolutely atrocious things in the you know in the Pacific Ocean. Japan post war, I mean, they've you know Japan today, uh, totally. There's some totally nationalistic, you know, awful like racist shit that's kind oh, of yeah. happening it's a very, in terms uh, of their own their own systems, and you know, yeah. I don't feel comfortable kind of delving into that in, in any kind of detail, but there's some really, really awful shit that kind of goes on in that world. I don't want to downplay that, but that doesn't have anything to do. I mean, this is ultimately a film. Um, <laughs> sorry, we're not even really talking about the details of the film, really. Um, but this is a film that uh, kind of posits, I mean, you've got two soldiers that came home from the war, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this is a deliberate and kind of obvious parallelism here, which, right. you know, uh, Tashirma Funi is Murakami, and then um, Kimura is Yusa. Yusa, yeah. They are both returning soldiers who came home from the war, and they both had a knapsack taken from them on the train mm-hmm. home, <laughs> which is a uh, detail that is uh, specific enough that uh, it's pretty clearly signposted as, like, we're not so different, you and I, right? <laughs> you know, which is a total cliche, but, uh, you know, I'm going to... This film... It fucking works. Does I it, mean, this film does it about as well as it's possible to do. Yeah, because it doesn't make that obvious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Mifune says, you know, as Murakami, he says, you know, this happened. I was really angry. I kind of felt I could have kind of been that at a certain time, but then, you know, I kind of said, no, I need to kind of go on and do something better with myself, and I decided to join the police force. Within the world of the film, that means like actually going after terrible criminals and not killing black people in the streets. Um, we'll leave it at that. Um, whereas Yusa, you know, we kind of get a picture of his kind of family life. The uh, the killer, we get his family life, and we kind of get a, a portrait of him. And he's, you know, he comes home and he's angry, like his father. And uh, we see the circumstances where they live, and it's you know they're, they're literally it's, living in yeah, it's I mean, they're poverty. literally they're literally living in, I mean, not even a barn. I mean, no. you know, like no. there's 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 a house which looks less nice than like little house on the prairie kind of you know like log cabin kind of living, and then we find out that Yusa lives in the like even more makeshift like piece of shit thing that he made for himself behind the house, you know. Yeah, they um, they, they mentioned that he sleeps outside. It's like Kurosawa like deftly shows the different levels of even the slums in this movie right, right. where early on there's a lot of stuff happening like the, all these buildings are clumped together and different things are happening in different buildings but you see like uh, a woman having her hair done and she's actually got like a modern appliance on her head getting that done and you know even then like the walls are flimsy and there's like curtains and shit but then later on you get to a point where if uh, Mufune's character walking around looking sussing out clues and stuff where he walks into like this big square of people who they don't even have walls and some guy's getting his fucking hair cut while these people are walking around him and shit. It's like, it, it, it keeps decreasing and decreasing and decreasing 
to like the the absolute abject poverty of this like skid row society that's basically most of Japan and, at this and, point. Yeah, no, where we get the sense. I mean, this is set in Tokyo. This is mm-hmm. set in Tokyo. It's just it's just sort of like a at least according to Wikipedia, it's like post war Tokyo. It doesn't really give kind of a date. Did you watch the uh, the commentary track by the? Uh, oh yeah, I've I've heard okay. it. Okay. So we can kind of talk about that again. I watched that like 10 years ago, and so uh, you may have a better uh, memory of it than I do. There's a student sequence where Murakami, as uh, played by Mifune, has to sort of go and, oh, just kind of go and be a bum hanging out, like looking for a gun dealer. And this is basically a seven-minute sequence of mm-hmm. him it's, it's just kind mostly... of walking around in this world. And uh it's shot documentary style. And in it's, fact, the, the commentary, mostly... the reason I mentioned the commentary and I, I'll say the sentence and then let you, you know, mm-hmm. but the, the point being, this is way, way too long in terms of like any kind of sense of dramatic tension. Like this should be kind of like, you know, a minute at most, you know, but this is also Kurosawa going and uh, filming all these places and then like putting it in his movie as a way of sort of like preserving it for kind of future generations to see. Um, mm-hmm. It's sort of the the perspective that the uh, the film historian who uh, does the commentary has to say, and it's an absolutely amazing sequence. It is way, way, way too long in terms of like getting across the plot right. point, but it does sort of sell the reality of this is just kind of what this era in living in Japan is like uh, for these people, and that there are just people just desperately like hanging out and kind of waiting for um, any kind of opportunity to kind of come along. And uh, I'll, I'll let you go. Yeah. This sequence was legit filmed <clears throat> in the slums of Japan at the time. So you do see uh, Mifune once in a while, although when you see his feet in that sequence, it's, I think the secondary cameraman mm-hmm. or something along those lines is, is, is stand in for that because there, there was some concern uh, over the fact that all these places they were filming were ruled by the Yakuza at that point. Like it, sure. it was, yeah. So there, there was some danger in doing this. You're right. It is a little too long. And honestly, the first time I watched this movie back in the day, I was confused by this sequence. Like sure. it, it went so there's long. A, there's, that, a, there's a lot. If you don't know the context, this made me think Mufune's character was flashing back to when he got out of the war <laughs> and he was walking around the slums. Sure. That's what yeah. I thought it was at yeah. first. Right. Um, but no, it, it it both serves as Mifune going undercover and trying to get the attention of the gun dealers, but it also serves as a really good little sort of documentary of what life is like in Japan contemporary at that point in these in this lower class, you know, in the in the, the real slums of the city. Yeah, the, the thing that struck me with this film, and this is something I find interesting, it's and I, I don't know if it's just, you know, Japan just kind of finding their, their way in the film industry. Like, they're kind of a few decades behind Hollywood. But there's sequences in this film that are basically just a silent movie, right? Um, yeah. And, and, with, and with, like, fairly, I mean, I, I don't want to, like, dish at the score or whatever, but, like, fairly cheesy music played over. Yeah, it, it you is. Know, you know, cinema, you know. Stuff that a, feels very kind of out of place in a, you know, sort of a, an, art, an art film, you know, kind of made at the time or even sort of a genre film, you know, where this is, you this do is, feel like, you know, like this is a seven minute sequence with sort of kind of cheesy, you know, kind of music placed over it. Like right. it feels like a little bit of a placeholder, but also uh, this would have been an era in which, you know, you go to a cinema and you see a newsreel before every, you know, and so 
it does feel a little bit like, oh yeah, we took like a little bit of the newsreel and put it into the the film. And so I think there is a, uh, I mean, I don't blame him. I I honestly don't blame Kurosawa for it. I think it's, I think it's, uh, I'm really happy we have it. And if it was just like footage that he had made that didn't make it like we wouldn't have it. Like it's just, you know, right. like it's just the reality, and, of it, you know? And, and the interesting thing is you have that. And then later on, you have the extended sequences with the baseball game. Oh yeah. They, they actually shot, they actually legit tried to shoot footage for the baseball game and Kurosawa was not happy with it. So he turned over the duties to some professionals who did newsreels. And that's mm-hmm. why the footage looks like that. Yeah, because yeah, no. he actually got legit newsreel people to do that for him and then insert it in. I, I think there's a there's a real um, kind of challenge in terms of us as you know people you know kind of talking in 2019 about like I mean this was I mean this is a 70 year old movie right you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> like in terms of kind of looking at this where we just kind of look at the footage and go like oh it just kind of looks crappy or it just kind of you know it's got some some negative damage or whatever I was like no no this was you know, in 1949, you would have seen this in a way that was like, okay, so we've got this kind of like brilliant art film happening, which has sequences cut in, which look mm-hmm. like newsreel footage or look like, you know, um, something that we'd see on uh, TV or, or whatever. Right. And I'm trying to kind of bring it home for, you know, our audience, you know, talking about it, you know. This is an artistic decision. This is very much a, you know, a kind of a jarring moment. And so the fact that there is kind of an extended, you mentioned the baseball sequence, the fact that we do have, uh, again, a fairly extensive, you know, in terms of, a, again, a 2019 audience, this is the moment where you check your phone kind of, you know, moment <laughs> in the film, you know, I don't want to be insulting towards it, but it is kind of like, oh, yeah, we're just going to watch kind of baseball for a while. Within the context of the film at that time, it's also suggesting in the and again, this is, you know, kind of something that we don't, that I didn't necessarily see until I kind of had the history pointed out to me, you know, baseball is an American invention. This is, you know, sort of American culture being kind of brought into Japan and baseball was huge in Japan around this time. Uh, this was, this was this massively important cultural innovation that was sort of uh, kind of brought in from outside. People loved baseball, even though it was, you know, the people who had like burned your fucking cities to the ground, right. like four years earlier, the film itself has a really complicated relationship with that, with that idea. And, and this kind of comes back over and over again. And, that's the thing that I kind of rewatching the film. That's the thing that I kind of come back to is that, is that ambivalence. Yeah, man, I don't, I don't even know what to say. Man, about are that. we even, the... are we even going to talk about the plot of this film? <laughs> at all? Well, I mean, get, getting back to the plot. I mean, it, it, it very much is kind of simple, but it's this sort of apprentice mentor relationship. It's, it's interesting because the relationship between Murakami and, and Sato, it mirrors the real life positioning of Kurosawa's main actors mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, Mifune is basically going to replace uh, Shimura here in a, in a few films. And so it, it has this sort of mentor student relationship. And in the film where it's about, the older, wiser detective sort of shepherding the newer detective into, you know, becoming the, the new generation that's going right. to go gonna forward. Remake, this going to re- remake Japan, ultimately, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, that's the same thing with the films. I mean, Mufune is going to be taking over. He's going to be the new leading man in a few years. 
and, yeah. and it's very much the same kind of relationship. And it's just, you know, one generation helping the other and guiding them and maybe installing some of their values. But there there is a conflict of values here where Mufune's character is, he still identifies with the criminals. Like he, he sympathizes with them. Whereas the older detective, uh, Seto, he, he's like, I hate these criminals. I, well, I have to hate them. There's a complicated move here that uh, that I think the script does that I think is really interesting, and so I'm going to use this as the excuse to to kind of do that. Mifune, so, so the the basic plot, and, and this is uh, it feels like the, uh, the sort of the uh, the logline, you know, sort of the the you know this is the start of the film mm-hmm. is very based on a the kind of noir plot, right? Some criminal stole my gun. I'm a cop. I've got to get it back and I'm going to, I'm going to be like deeply conflicted, grim, dark, you know, upset <laughs> about like, you know, we're going to go into existential horror about the fact that my, that my, that my gun is being used to, to kill people. Also as an American and as someone who's seen a lot of crime films, you know, one gun with seven bullets in it has been lost and we have to get it back. Like that is such a you know. Well, they <laughs> you know? They, they make a fact like they make a point later where uh, he mentions due to your efforts they confiscated like a dozen guns or something right, like right. that. Like that's a major thing. Like right, America would right. be like, who gives a fuck? That's that's like Tuesday. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like you know, there's no. This is a country with more guns than people in the United mm-hmm. States. Um. So. But I love that about this film, that it's, I lost my gun. The plot is, there are seven bullets in that gun, and each of those bullets can have someone's name on it. Right. You know? And that's that's one of the, that's the, kind of the driving point of the film. And while in America in 2019, that feels like ridiculously naive, you know, yeah. <laughs> like that's totally kind of a cultural issue. Anyway, um, so the gun is stolen. Murakami is played by Mifune is completely obsessed with like, I've got to get this gun back. I've got like, he's really kind of pushing forward. And then all the more experienced detectives he talks to are like, you know, yeah, you know, this is a thing. It happens. Uh, you know, you're going to go on half pay for a few months, uh, you know, slap on the wrist kind of punishment, whatever you get an extended sequence. And this is at a certain point, uh, detective Sato played by, uh, Takashi Shimura, who, I'm just going to say this now so I don't have to, you know, uh, Takashi Shimura has one of the great faces in cinema. Like, I absolutely love looking at his face. He, on, he is, he, he's legit my favorite Japanese actor. Like, yeah, I, no. I love him, man. Yeah. There's a sequence here where he eats a popsicle. And <laughs> it's delightful. It's just, <laughs> you know, it's hard to it's hard to even like compare. Anyway, um, I absolutely love this guy. Uh, he's the lead in Seven Samurai. If you've seen Seven Samurai and haven't seen this, uh, God, we got to do Seven Samurai at some point. But that's so yeah. much harder than doing It'll this. It'll be a big episode. And, and it's and it's even like doing this. I'm realizing like, oh God, I didn't prepare nearly enough to, to really <laughs> approach this. You know, I thought this would be the easy Kurosawa, but yeah, like, the easy it only gets harder from here. <laughs> um. Anyway, so uh, you know, he they have a conversation. So um, Sato, uh, brings uh, Murakami at a certain point. They've got like. You, you, we can't do any more tonight. Come home with me. Sato brings him to his house, 
and then uh, you get the kind of the children, the children sleeping. You get sort of the children's toys. Uh, we've got some of the rationed beer. Let's have a little bit of beer together, and you know, it speaks to the poverty of the situation. Right. Um, but it also speaks like they have a kind of a philosophical conversation about like you know. So Mifune, uh, as as uh, Murakami, is obsessed with I got to get this guy. I've got to do the morally correct thing and kind of solve this. Sato is more like this is just sort of the the thing that we do. This is our job. We're going to make this happen. At a certain point, Mifune says, you know, it was my Colt. It was my gun that put the bullet on that person. Sato's like, look, if it had been your gun, it would have been one of it would have been somebody else's gun. Like that's sort of the you know. Hmm. Sato has the perspective that there are certain people who are sort of born bad, who are sort of like they're right. bad people regardless. And the situation, where, whereas uh, Mifune is Murakami, is more on, you know, the situationist. That, mm-hmm. well, I wasn't in that place. I wasn't in that particular moment. I haven't. And I think, for me, because I have this kind of, like, complicated relationship with some of these issues myself, there is a kind of legitimate, neither one of these people is completely right to me. There is a kind of a dialectic going on. Where, there is there is a middle uh, ground, I think. Yeah. And, and, I, and, I, and I think that the film doesn't give us kind of an obvious answer at the end, right? You know, yeah. it really avoids kind of drawing those conclusions. And I think by making uh, Murakami both really obsessed with his own kind of moral place in this hierarchy and really obsessed with kind of getting the guy, but also understanding a sort of kind of situationist kind of societal level, uh, big picture uh, in terms of like kind of what causes people to do these things versus Sato, who's very by the book. Okay. We're just going to kind of do the thing that we have to do. It's kind of the job that we do, but also kind of thinks people are born evil which is horrifying. That's that's a that's a horrifying like well, perspective. Yeah, you know? he mentions he mentions that I was like you once, mm-hmm. but after some years of experience, this is where I've come to. This is my conclusion. So he's he's gotten jaded to the point where he's yeah, there are bad people out there and I hate them and I want to put them in prison. Like Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> As someone who has spent some amount of time understanding really terrible people, uh <laughs> I am much more on Murakami's point of view on this, you know, that, uh, you know. Well, yeah, it's, you, you, you make mention Kurosawa doesn't necessarily go for the easy answer here. So it, it's open to interpretation. And the, the film, the film definitely asks the question. It doesn't make us choose one or the other. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't because it would be really easy from a, again, a 2019 perspective to give them the opposite, to make sort of the, the all in the family, right? Sort of answer yeah. where there's the liberal young guy who's, oh yeah, you know, who has sort of the, the right opinion. And then there's the sort of older guy who has the wrong opinion. But he kind of flips stifle it a little that bit. Either, stifle that there. Yeah, he kind of flips it a little bit. And I think that that's, that's a really interesting move in terms yeah. of, you know, uh, because like for the most part, I'm totally on board with uh, Shimura. I'm totally born with Sato. Well, I mean, Sato's, like, Sato's no fucking monster either. He's 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 a no, he's perfectly not. pleasant, but, but nice guy. He's perfect, well, he's a nice guy. He's a uh, professional. He's mm. really good at his job. He's perfectly able to kind of understand um, so, sort of the realities of this. But he's taken on the values of the system in which he lives, right. which is, he's, you know, you do this long enough and you just sort of like go, well, yeah, the guy who um, stole a purse is uh, just a terrible person and deserves the jail. 
you know, ultimately. That's the code he's tucking up over years yeah. that's helped him survive being a cop. And that's also the maybe like being a cop is a bad thing, you know, right, which right. I don't think the film explores that at all, but I think the film gives us sort of a complex enough sort of uh, moral reality that we sitting on the outside can definitely ask that question, you know. Yeah, yeah, right? definitely. Yeah. Kurosawa is wise and not giving you like a central here's what i think and even then he might be slightly doing that but at the same time is no just leave it open for the most part it's basically in in this film it's a very kind of western and and this is one of those things that uh, kurosawa has you know in in his home country he was always accused of doing is kowtowing to western values and western ideas the cops are the good guys in this film. Like the yeah. top, the, the cops bottom, are the unquestionably good guys. good guys in this film. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Just going on. I'm just going to throw some random things here. Yeah. Um, I, I feel I, like Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's way deeper to... than we thought. I think. No, I mean, it's, I knew it was deep. Yeah. But, but also like once you rewatch it, you're like, how do we even begin to approach this? And, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, uh, how do you we, how do you begin to try to cover everything? There's so fucking much in this film. So, yeah, so, you mentioned. So can I hit me with the potpourri here? I th- I think that's uh, probably a yeah. So I mean, you mentioned how this is just one of the best films <sighs> as far as showing heat. The opening shot with the dog. Oh yeah, it's just fucking kind of brilliant. I like how everybody's wear. Like you, you can kind of tell that it's really hot just by what everyone's wearing in this film. Mm-hmm. Everyone's wearing light clothes. Uh, they're I all mean, they're all the the, the summer suit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's sort of the uh, the standard wear of the uh, you know westernized, yeah westernized cops and such. And then you get Kurosawa's sort of signature uh, that he'd be known for with like extreme weather. Of course, weather created because Kurosawa's big on if I want a rainstorm, I'm going to make it myself, motherfucker. And, um, <laughs> and there is a big rainstorm, and he does make it it's, make it himself, and it's brilliant. It's yeah, and, and it comes yeah. It, it it's climatic, and it comes with the climax of the film. Like it, it, yeah. as soon as the case breaks open, where it's like we know who we have to get, and we're going to go get them. Suddenly, all of a sudden, the fucking heavens open, and there's this just downpour that's extreme that breaks the heat of the film, and also the uh, emotional heart of the film in a lot of ways. Which I don't think we're I don't think we're going to cover this appropriately, but um, there is a really nice performance by uh, Keiko Awaji as uh, mm-hmm. uh, Harumi Namiki, who is the kind of the girlfriend of the killer, the the sort of the, yeah. the stray dog, and she is one who is uh, sort of traded in the kimono for the kind of Western clothes effect right. that extended sequence with a dress that uh, Yusa, the sort of the bad guy, has, has bought for her with stolen goods. And she knew it was stolen, but not. And so there's a really kind of complicated kind of moral relationship behind that, but also um, sort of a cultural kind of moment of like, are right. we going to kind of a- adapt to these Western values or are we going to kind of like kind of keep the old ways and ultimately kind of know the way that Japan's going to kind of go in the future it's an amazing relationship because ultimately she kind of uh is an it's amazing performance because ultimately she uh, kind of starts off as uh not willing to kind of give information to the cops and then sort mm-hmm. of like kind of uh leans into them but kind of leans away and then there's a relationship between her and her mother and her feelings and again all of this is you know there's no moment that you can kind of point to and go oh yeah look at the brilliant performance like the oscar reel of you know <laughs> look at the moment to where like and then i cried or whatever you know there's no moment that kind of sells that 
I think it is it is a really really phenomenal performance, and well, uh, you know. Uh, Kurosawa would just kind of trust his actress to to do it. You know, there are a lot of really amazing. I mean, there are there are at least four really astonishing female performances in this film. Um, well, yeah, and the thing I want to say is, um, no, you don't get these... to talk on this podcast. You you know. <laughs> well, fuck you! I'm going to say it anyway. Um, <laughs> you just edit me out. It's fine. You know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, edit right here. Um, <laughs> one of the brilliant things about this is. Kurosawa is essentially giving us big on the nose cultural uh, moments where it's like, here, here's something in society I want to talk about, but it's kind of drowned by the performances. Like the performances are so good that it feels natural. It doesn't feel on the nose. It's not like slapping you in the face with this shit. It's because the performances are so good that you're actually watching people with conflicts on screen and they're playing them out on screen. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think it works really well. I really like. Uh, I, I should mention the, the the fucking sets in this film. This film had expansive sets. A good example is early on they go to the I guess the police records room with all the uh, the drawers with the cards in them or mm-hmm. whatever. That was all built. I call that I call that the Ghostbuster set. The Ghostbusters. Yeah. <laughs> that was all built, and all those cards were individually placed in those drawers. Yeah, that they they went to that detail with these sets, mm-hmm. which is fucking amazing. And again, early crime lab work, we get like you know uh, testing a gun, seeing what uh, what gun fired this bullet or whatever. We get some of that stuff. We actually get some CSI stuff uh, in a crime scene later in the film when there where a murder happens uh, with, with I, that gun. One watching this film, I want there to be a CSI series that's set in nineteen forty nine. Where, you know, instead of like having lasers like pointing everything, it's like, and then we have a microscope and we've like carefully compared the groove patterns. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, the the actual CSI, that's a science fiction show. Like, because a lot of of the stuff in that show is not real. But no, uh, but, but, uh, but, but in, uh, in the, in the case of a film like this, like they're, they're kind of like, you know, this is, this is very much like just Kurosawa just liked this shit. And so you mm-hmm. put a bunch of it in the film and, uh, we get to just sort of get to watch, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, some, some guy looking through a microscopic grooves on a bullet is, you know, <laughs> three minutes of this film. Uh, great. Yeah. Thumbs up. Kira Kurosawa. Um, yeah. you've been dead 21 years, but I like you anyway. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Two other things I'll just mention that I, I really like. Um, and these are just basically just character things. I, I like how Mufune dogs that aged, uh, well, getting older prostitute early on yeah. in the film where he just follows her for the entire day until she gives up and actually buys him a beer and some food. It's like, here, you're probably hungry. Have this. Well, the beer's cold. I- I don't like him doing that because he's like an agent of the state, like harassing well, yeah. women, you know, but I love her, you mm-hmm. know, because she realizes like kind of what's going on. She uh, sort of respects the, uh, the desire, the, the sort of, you know, that he's pushing her. He's trying to get information and doing the thing. She doesn't want to give information. That's good. She doesn't want to be a snitch, but ultimately yeah. feels like she could kind of go on and just kind of trail it. But ultimately like, uh, you know, it's 1130, on you know at, at night we just had the train go by the guy's still kind of waiting outside give me a beer and some food i'm gonna you know uh, i'm gonna give the guy enough information to kind of move on and uh i like her performance more than his I, and in fact oh yeah she's one of my favorite characters in the film 
Also yeah, and she gets her. she gets a moment there after she gives she gives him the beer and the food, and then she gives him a little tip. Here's where you should look. Go go yeah. there and go, leave me alone. Go, go do this completely obvious thing that yeah. you should have thought to do if you had more than twenty minutes of experience at this. You know, yeah. She, well, she she uh, mentions you really are a greenhorn, aren't you? Yeah, she does. You know, yeah. there, there there is a uh, you know. I like the fact that this film was made in 1949 as opposed to, you know, 1979 because she would have been a prostitute in 1979, right? right? You know? And she would have been like, no, like, come and uh, you can fuck me and I will give you uh, advice afterwards. Like, it does feel like there's a little bit of that (laughs) sort of mentor-mentee relationship. And, you know, there is that, again, it it feels like he's a greenhorn, but also kind of, he's an innocent the film itself respects her. The film itself like mm-hmm. kind of gives her the space to uh, kind of understand. Yeah, I'm a pickpocket, but also I live in like crushing poverty. Yeah, you know? this isn't. I, I'm doing this because like you know we talked about Ocean's Eight. Look, look, these are rich people who have no desire to. You know, these are not people who have any fear of missing the next meal. Ultimately, mm-hmm. this isn't that kind of crime film. This is a film that's about. Everybody is always searching for the next meal ticket. This is a society with like ration cards for rice, you know? Yeah. This is a world in which, oh, we've got a couple of extra beer rations in the fridge. Not even a fridge, I don't suspect, you yeah. know? We've got a couple of extra beer rations. We've got a couple of bottles of beer hanging around. You're welcome to a bottle based on you're an honored guest that comes to my home, you know? Right. Like, that's that. That's the world that this, that this film is uh, suggesting. And, uh, I think that not approaching this film with that in mind and with that kind of perspective in mind makes it seem more generic than it really is, you know? Right. Uh, And the only other thing I'll mention, there's this brilliant sequence where uh, Detective Sato ends up getting shot, where he's uh, trying to get a phone call back to Mifune. I'm on the guy. I'm I'm right here right now. I've got this guy. We're going to get him. And, there's this little side sequence because Mifune's in this uh, geisha bar, I guess it is, mm-hmm. uh, is, is where he is. And the owner and the... There, there's, a, there's a little bit of like where there, there's a uh, questionable provenance of whether these uh, women are like kind of prostitutes or just sort of dancers. You know? Right, right. Um, yeah, they yeah. they don't full on go that these, these girls are prostitutes. They're just dancers and, you know, they, they wear... Uh, sort of bikini bottoms that could be much more smaller to my, you know, just for my personal gratification. The bikini but, wasn't invented uh, for another couple of years. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so sweaty Japanese girls, but <laughs> sweaty Japanese girls dot blogspot.com. <laughs> <laughs> but at, at the, Gisha, <laughs> there, there's a lot of that in this film. If you're, if you're interested in that, you know, yeah, yeah. But, but not in a fetishy way, just in a, no. like, you know, you know, it's just the reality of it's like yeah. they've danced in this, oppressive heat and now they're all lounging in this room and they're these are, sweating these like are, dogs. these are sorry i'm i'm completely interrupting the point you're making but i'm also saying like that sequence is brilliant because it's, oh yeah we go on stage and we dance and and even like sort of the dancers they're not all like exquisitely choreographed they spin at different times and they do oh yeah know, there's but you know but also we're pretty girls and we're kind of dancing in front of an audience we have lights on us and we look great, but then also we go behind the scenes and we all kind of, uh, you know, pile up in one little tiny like wood slatted room, mop the sweat off of our brows because I, it's, you know, 150 would, degrees or whatever. You know? I'm, I'm not, I'm not keen on the idea of smelling that room. Let's just put it that way. Um, I am. 
Well, there we go. But there we in, go. Uh, but in but in really complicated ways that we probably shouldn't explore on this podcast. Right, right. So. The owner and I guess like the head woman. I don't know if he's the dude's wife or just the 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 desk girl or whatever. Right. I don't. There's this nice little moment uh, just before uh, Sato gets shot on the phone. Where oh, and also th- it's one of the key little uh, sound moments in this where she turns on the radio and that song blares through the phone and it, it comes out the phone on the other end after Sato gets shot and Mifune hears it on the yeah, phone. Yeah. There's this little flirtatious thing between them and they don't want to be seen. He doesn't want to be seen doing it with the cop in the other room, just looking through the door or whatever. And it's, it's this fun little character moment that I, I really, really like where he's like, Oh yeah. You know, like touch your chin and stroke my finger down your face and stuff like that. And then, and she's like, no, the cops looking, stop it. <laughs> right. Right. There's a lot of great character work. It's, I, you know, there, you know what this is ultimately. And, and I, and I, and I say this with no disrespect to it at all is this is um brilliant detective fiction. Mm-hmm. Ultimately the point of this kind of genre fiction is we're going to give you a fairly straightforward plot. We're going to kind of go through like, Oh, there's a murder or there's a thing that's happening. We're going to uh, walk through like an investigation, but also we're going to introduce you to a bunch of characters and we're going to give you a world and we're going to sell that. And we're going to make it exciting and make it interesting and make you feel something about these people. And this is uh one of the greatest possible examples of that happening. I mean, ultimately Lee and I are going to have to wrap up here uh, yeah. pretty soon. You know, I didn't take notes on this. I really like, you know, we could have, but we could go for like four hours talking about a lot of the amazing stuff in this. Like this is a film that if you haven't seen it is absolutely worth your time. And honestly, yep. one of the things I love about uh, discussing these films with you is it just makes me want to watch it again. You know, it just yeah, makes yeah. me, uh, yeah. There were so many moments that like, I didn't necessarily even ping to that I'm like, oh, great. Yeah, you're right, Lee. That's an amazing moment. And, uh, you know, I, I promise you, I could list probably five other, like, brilliant things in this film that would take us so much time to cover that we're just not going to take the time to yeah. cover. Um, it's, it's an astonishing film. One of the great, um, you know, w- the highlights of a career of one of the greatest filmmakers of all the time, which, uh, you know, hey, we could totally cover this in 45 minutes. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Saying something that this is one of his highlights and this is like super early in his career, really, when you consider things. It's like, it's yeah, just, yeah. he turns out something this fucking brilliant that early. Well, the fact, the fact that we've kind of done all this and realized how much we missed and then realized... Oh, this is this is the easy one compared to like Seven <laughs> Samurai, you know? Yeah. <laughs> because uh, you know, behind the scenes, like Lee and I kind of like had the moment of, oh, you know, should you know, I kind of gave him the choice. Oh yeah, we could do Straight Dog for kind of the easy one, or we could do Seven Samurai. And we decided to do this, it's like, oh yeah, let's let's just let's let's dip our toes into Kurosawa and do <laughs> the easy one. And then like you're rewatching and go like Holy fuck, this is not an easy one at all. Uh, you know? Seven Samurai is going to be like a four-hour podcast. That's going to be Seven, the four. I'm tempted. Like, 150 is our next episode, and I'm very tempted to just go, fuck it, we're doing Seven Samurai. We're going to do seven hours of, you know, if Seven you, Samurai. If you want to fucking drop the ball and do it, I'll do it. I, I had I had something else planned for 150, but, you know. Yeah, uh, well, it's it's up to you. You're programming, so uh, you you tell yeah. me. <laughs> but uh, 
we'll get, we'll get to some trivia real quick and, uh, sure. and get get this stuff uh, ended. <laughs> All right, some quick trivia things here. Uh, during the opening credits, as we mentioned, there's footage of a panning dog. However, the American censors saw the footage. They assumed the dog had been harmed. This run in with American censors caused Kurosawa to remark that this was the only time he wished Japan had not lost World War II. Uh, so and and there is this direct quote from him in an interview he says that first shot of the panning dog of its tongue hanging out caused me immense woes the dog's face appears under the title of the film to create the impression of heat but i received an unprovoked complaint or rather accusation from an american woman who had watched the filming she represented the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals and claimed that I had a healthy dog injected with rabies. This was a patently false charge. The dog was a stray that we had obtained from a pound where it was about to be put away. The people in charge of props had given it affectionate care. It was a mutt, but it had a very gentle face, so we used makeup to give it a more ferocious appearance and had a man on a bicycle exercise it to make it pant. When its tongue started to hang out, we filmed it. But no matter how carefully we explained all this, the American SPCA lady refused to believe it because the Japanese were barbarians. Injecting a dog with rabies was just the sort of thing we would do, and she had no time for the truth. In the end, I was forced to write a disposition, and I never at any other moment experienced a stronger sense of regret for Japan losing the war. So there you go. Like, just... So- so what you're telling me is that Americans in the 60s were hella racist. Yeah, this imperial racism. Yeah, you know, I have... Why, I'm, why, trust, I'm why trust these vicious yellow savages with anything? I'm, right? I'm shocked. Yeah. I will say that like when I first saw the film, that, that opening sequence did look like they were trying to sort of suggest a... Like sort of a rabid dog sort of thing, you know. You know, they do dirty its fur up, and it is sort of like behind mm-hmm. the the characters. My wife watched most of this film with me. You know, she had never seen it before, and uh, she saw the the dog panting. It's like, oh, adorable dog. Yeah, <laughs> you know? no, it, it and, just and, just looks, and, looks and, like and a hot dog. it's just kind of how you how you sort of interpret it necessarily, right? You know? Um, and you know, some people interpret with an agenda and some people just watch the film and go, Oh, that's a really hot dog that's panning on the ground. Yeah. You know, like, you know, like most rational non-racist people would do. Um, <laughs> so, and, uh, much of the film was, uh, as we I, did, was, to be fair, to be fair, I never thought the dog was abused. I just kind of always thought it was meaning to sort of intend a, a certain level of like a uh, sort of aggressiveness or what or whatever. You know? Yeah. I mean, I I'd, I'd seen several Kurosawa films before I'd saw a stray dog. It was like mm-hmm. already, yeah, the dog motif. I get it. Kurosawa is, has a thing for stray dogs in his films, you know, <laughs> whether, I think whether... this was actually the first Kurosawa I ever saw. Honestly. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah. I mean, again, again, you know, 12 years ago or whatever it was. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, fuck. <laughs> no, no, no. I saw actually dreams. I saw dreams oh. in high school in a class, believe it or not, you know. Um, so I had seen I had seen dreams, but I think this was uh, the second anyway. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. Moving uh, you know, on. We got to wrap up at some point, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's the, do a four hour episode tonight. Yeah. The, complete the, bullshit. The the only other uh, trivia thing I'll mention is that this was remade as Nora Inu in 1973, which directly translates to uh, Stray Dog uh, in Japanese. Sumite Chi in 1997, 
uh, Too Much Sleep in 1997 as well. And it was also remade in 2013 for TV. So there we go. DVD info for this. It's basically just the Criterion. That's the one to get. Uh, there is no Blu-ray as far as on our side of the pond anyway. I think there might be some Blu-ray options in like different regions. Mm-hmm. But so far, Criterion has not put out a uh, Blu-ray of this. So your best bet is the Criterion uh, single disc DVD that they still it's have. Hard on. For, it's hard for me to imagine that the uh, sort of the cleaned up version is, is you know, that you could really clean this up to the point where it would be worth the Blu-ray conversion. I think it would lose yeah. something if you clean this up yeah. for Blu-ray because they they all they already cleaned it up for DVD, and you still have that sort of old footage feel. That yeah, sort of particularly the, ba- the baseball sequences in particular really kind of have that have that you know. And I would hope that whoever is doing like that they know that that's part of like that they're not complete stupid people and they will like realize i know this is part of the, the joy of the film this is like an artistic choice you know mm-hmm. um th- there's always a question of like when you when you clean this stuff up you know you know where do you want this to be like what's the what's the point of this like you know if you if you got this to where there's no like noise so there's no like film grain that's not the experience of this film there's so much of this film that's kind of based on like right. kind of looking at the actual like emulsion patterns that you know the the that the film kind of just um, embodies I, like I don't know. want to see this in 4K. Like I don't give yeah. a fuck. It's <laughs> so it's so made in a particular place of time. And, I, and again, this is something that you know we kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier when I was talking about you know you know a big CGI uh, you know kind of special effects mm-hmm. fest that's uh, sort of made for uh, kind of a, a fun experience. Just kind of sitting and watching uh, kind of goofy people like snark at each other. Yeah, give that to me in the best quality you could possibly do it. Like I'm fine with that. But like this is uh, you know, kind of made to be in a particular place in time. And if you make this look too clean, it's uh you lose some of the experience. And uh, you know. It almost feels like it's kind of whitewashing the situation. It's like, oh look how cute Japan was in post war World War Two, you know. Like, yeah, and God, and there's so much there's so much of like the effects that were of the time. Like there's a ton of weather in this. There's a ton uh-huh. of uh, stuff, you know. There, there's a sequence of uh, you know, kind of Mifune and Shimura sitting on a park bench, and uh, you see like the sky above them. And this was shot on some particular day at some particular time in like 1949 or 1948 in Japan, in Tokyo. To clean that up, to turn that into you know something that kind of looks spotless is to uh, is to kind of miss some of the point that Kurosawa was kind of getting at with the way he shot it, which was clearly to kind of encapsulate a moment, you know, and uh, celluloid had even in its purest state has grain. <laughs> and yeah. if you take that away, you're taking away the vision of the film. It's like, yeah. it's, it's, it's that simple. Um, Daniel, what are we doing for episode 150 of They Must Be Destroyed on Site? Well, I, I didn't necessarily intend it to be. Like, I, I realize now it's 150. I and I feel really bad for this because, like, we had always kind of talked about doing Day of the Dead. But I kind of don't want to do Day of the Dead. We I, don't have uh, to, no. Yeah. We're, well, if you make it up to me, ultimately it's your, it's your podcast, my friend. But, uh, you know. We're going to do one of my favorite films, uh, okay. which uh, is uh, a film that I always kind of like to watch around Christmas and New Year's, and I didn't get to watch this year because I, I kind of planned we're going to do it in late December, early January, we were kind of planning this. We're going to do The Apartment. Uh, sure. This is uh, Billy Wilder's film from 1960. I deeply, deeply love this movie. 
Um, but also uh, another, uh, we've never done a Billy Wilder film on this podcast. And right. This is a, one of his masterpieces and B one that a lot of people, uh, you know, people know some like it hot. People know like double indemnity. People know some of the, some of the other stuff, but this, this kind of gets uh, lost in the shuffle a little bit. This is a film. We'll talk about it next week. I'm sure I came to blind the first time I saw it on Turner classic movies and fell in fucking love. And also one that I have discussed on this podcast before, because I got to see it on the big screen at the Alamo Draft House, where right. we had an Alamo Draft House in this town, and curses to uh, the company that took away my Alamo Draft House <laughs> in this town. Although, thank you, because now I don't spend nearly as much money going to the movies as I used to. But, <laughs> so yeah, we're going to do the apartment next week, and uh, honestly, it's worth it's worth episode 150. This is this is an amazing film. Yeah. Have you seen the apartment? No. So uh... oh, Shirley MacLaine, adorable. Shirley MacLaine is all I'm going to say. All right. All right. All right. Good, good, good. So, Daniel, where can people find you on the interwebs? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper. And believe it or not, I have a new podcast. Oh, yeah, you do. I do. If you do want to listen to me talk. So, if you've been following for a while, you know that for the last two years, I've been following some really terrible people on the internet. And I really try to not talk about that too much in this space because nobody wants to hear that shit like out of the blue. But if you do want to hear me talk about like genocidal racism, there's a place for you to do that. And that is there's a podcast. I don't speak German. I don't I'm not editing this. I don't actually remember the URL, but uh, Lee will give you the URL. Um, And I there's one episode that's up now about uh, Richard Spencer. And uh, episode two, which we're going to record tomorrow. And this is uh, myself and my friend, friend of the podcast, Jack Graham. Next episode is going to be about uh, David Duke. And uh, after that, we're going to kind of do, you know, these are these are fairly brief podcasts of about an hour, hour and, you know, hour, hour and a half, which are kind of based on um, exploring some specific topic within, (laughs) again, really, really awful people. um, And the research that I've been doing for the last two years, uh, specifically built on, you know, sort of exploring it and as a way of like helping me to kind of develop writing about it and also to uh, put together all the references that I have, like to kind of do the work and kind of like organize thoughts a little bit. So um, it's really been useful for me, I will say, having recorded one of them. I think the first episode is, is actually pretty good, and I think they're only going to get better from there. I, I will attest that it is good. If you're, if you're interested in listening to Daniel uh, talk about awful people like Richard Spencer, these Nazi fucks who he's been researching for two years now, if you're not familiar with this sort of sphere of uh, discourse, this is actually a good podcast to get into because the first episode is very... Uh, user friendly is the way I'd, I'd put it. Uh, it, it. It's not super complex. It's not obtuse and esoteric. It's like, here's Richard Spencer. He's a piece of shit, and here's why. That kind of thing. So it, it's, it's the, very. The goal, the goal is to both be accessible mm-hmm. to people who don't know, but also um, complete to not like oversimplify, right? You know? Yeah. Because I feel like that's the, you know, again, as someone who's been following, I have listened to literally thousands of hours of nazi shitheads talking spreading propaganda at this point you know yeah and the goal is to both i know exactly what these people are and what they say and i have like you know i have like kind of i've done academic reading on this stuff and i can kind of not oversimplify the way that like sort of a thousand word article would 
but also um, to introduce it to people in a way that uh, is not uh, too overwhelming or complicated. You know, that's not, I don't assume that you have any knowledge kind of going in. And uh, that's kind of the challenge that Jack and I are going to have is to try to like figure out like, you know, like Jack is really good at sort of asking the easy question to, to sort of like, to make me not just kind of do yeah. the like complicated read of it, you know, because for me, I'm like, I'm like four levels deep on this shit. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, no, Jack yeah. like asked me to like, you know, well, why do you say that? Oh, okay. Hold on. Let me, let me go back. You know, and that's not like speaking, like kind of talking myself up on it. It's just sort of like, um, you know, um, when you're this deep into anything, like sometimes you need somebody to kind of like ask the, like, you know, no, explain the basics first. And then we'll kind of get into that, you know? Um, so yeah, uh, the first episode a... was kind of a joy. I listened to it. It was a joy to record. And um, I think it's only going to kind of get better, hopefully. Um, so. Oh yeah. Well, you're getting to unload a bunch of shit and, and Jack's a good interviewer. I mean, He's he's just a fucking brilliant guy anyway, so uh, yeah, it, it only makes sense. But you know, if you're not interested in politics and, and this kind of stuff, then you can just totally ignore this. But uh, I would I'd probably mention uh, Darren Wilson, uh, Court Psyops. You might be really interested in this podcast. Just saying. Um, so 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 we'll leave it at that. Um, and you can find us, of course, at tmbdos.podbean.com, where you can find all of our requisite links to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and our Facebook group. They must be destroyed on site on Facebook, which is the best way to find out what's coming up on the podcast. But you already heard what's coming up on the podcast, so there you go. You're already in the know. You're already fully informed. And Daniel, our first dip into Kurosawa, it was an absolute pleasure. So yeah, uh, thank we'll, you. For- we'll do we'll do more Kurosawa for sure. Like at some point, yeah, or, or in the hour- next twenty years before we hand it off to Paul's daughter. So yeah. <laughs> Uh, so thank you everyone for what, uh, listening and, uh, we'll be back when we're back. Goodbye. Cheers.
You have been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For other episodes, our links to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and our Facebook group, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>